This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. And I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. On this week's episode, we'll be weighing up the candidates for the Republican nomination, asking whether Rishi Sunak has made the right decision on small boats, and learning about the world of destructive performance art. First up, it's Ron v Don. In his cover piece for the magazine, Freddie Gray anticipates the fight between Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump for the Republican nomination. Freddie joins us now alongside The Spectator's Washington editor, Anne Brathy. Freddie, you write this week that Trump supporters see Ron DeSantis almost as the establishment candidate. Do they have a point? Oh, absolutely they have a point. I think the establishment, uh, the old Republican establishment, Ron DeSantis, all the sort of sophisticated pollsters in America, the well-paid pollsters, they all want Ron DeSantis because they think that he will win. And they also have a sort of disdain and a disgust for the Trump movement, which they regard as kind of working class and a bit disgusting. And a lot of the Republican donors, including a lot of donors who uh, backed Trump, who supported Trump, but were never very comfortable with him, have now all turned to Ron DeSantis as the, the bright new hope of the Republican Party. And Amber, what do you make of the race for the Republican nomination so far? Of course, acknowledging that it is still quite early days. Do you think if it comes to be a battle for the nomination between Trump and DeSantis, uh, who do you think will win? (laughs) I loathe to make a prediction on that. Honestly, I have no idea. I think it's it's hard to make predictions now, particularly because DeSantis hasn't even announced yet. So people are reading really... Uh, aggressively into the polls thus far, but they're all speculative because DeSantis not only hasn't announced, but he's only just started his his shadow campaign, so to speak. He's set to go to Iowa soon. He's released a memoir, but just started the book tour. Um, So I don't even think that he's been able to build the idea in people's heads that he's running enough yet for any of the typical prognosticators to make a good prediction. So do you still think it's possible that he he may not run at all? I find that unlikely, (laughs) but we'll see. I, I just think that he probably is pretty terrified of falling into the Chris Christie trap, which was that Christie had all the the momentum in 2012. And then he didn't run, waited until 2016 and ended up in an incredibly crowded primary where Trump just one by one decimated every other member of the Republican Party. Uh, so it's an easy mistake to make. Politics is a really fast moving game. And if DeSantis lets Trump have his moment and waits until 2028, he could be old news by then. Freddie, what is it that DeSantis has going for him? I mean, you say in your piece that he had a good pandemic helping to establish Florida as a freedom Eden, as you put it. I mean, is that all going to help him? I think so. I think probably DeSantis's greatest asset at the moment is Trump fatigue and that a lot of Republican voters, even if they like Trump, are a bit tired of him. They accept that the last few elections have not gone according to plan. The reasons for why they accept that vary. 
He is clever, and uh, people have compared him to Richard Nixon. I say that in the piece. Roger Stone, who I spoke to about the piece, who's a long-time controversial ally of Donald Trump, says he's an introvert in an extrovert's world, which means that he's not very natural or charismatic on camera, but he does have a talent for spotting issues that he can go after very hard. He goes after woke corporations. He went had this big fight with Disney that even though he has actually not banished their special tax status, it turns out, he certainly won the media war over that. And then over lockdown, he was very brave in that he flew in the face of the sort of scientific consensus, stopped the mask mandates, opened up the state, and it was very successful because Florida thrived. And I think he can probably be called the most successful governor of the 21st century because Florida has been this amazing success story. So he has this great record as governor, which he can, even though it's not a very long record, but he can certainly point to his successes there. And he can just thrive without being rude about Trump because he doesn't want to be rude about Trump. He can thrive off the fact that a lot of voters are a little bit tired of Trump. And But I'd be interested to know from Amber, who knows Trump voters better than I do, how real she thinks Trump fatigue is. I Yeah, I, I think Trump fatigue might be a little bit overblown. There's um, Trump fatigue fatigue. speech that he gave at CPAC this past weekend was apparently really well received. He spoke in, in sort of classic grievance politics terms, um, talking about how he was the retribution for people who felt like they had been wronged by the system, which is a, a welcome tone for a lot of the Republican base, especially considering, I think, in the immediate aftermath of the 2020 election, what gave people Trump fatigue was that it was more personal grievance politics as opposed to grievances on behalf of the American people. So if Trump is able to pivot back to the wider concerns of working class Americans, I think he could be very effective. But that being said, there's also a contingent of people who really love Trump and respect Trump for what he did in 2016, but feel like his administration was not as effective as it could have been because he chose really poor people to come around him. And they were people who ended up undermining a lot of his policies. Um, His personnel decisions were not exactly prime. Um, So the question on a lot of people's minds is, has Trump learned from his first term in office? Will he staff the administration with better people this time around? And are there even enough people left that still have credibility that would want to work in a Trump administration? It was interesting, actually, if I may butt in there, it was interesting, actually, that Trump addressed exactly that in that CPAC speech. He did a lot on, you know, I didn't know Washington. I didn't know, you know, I I, I learned a lot in my first term. He wants to speak to those people who were disappointed in his first administration and reassure them that he will now demolish the deep state. (laughs) Uh, Amber, uh, Freddie, Freddie mentioned earlier Ron DeSantis in his fights against sort of wokeness. And, and do you think that there's a there's a desire from descendants to support us, to sort of paint him as this man who will fight kind of Trumpist causes, but do so more effectively than Trump, who, who I mean, you mentioned there the kind of um, dissatisfaction with effectiveness in the 2016 administration. But do you think that's even possible? I mean, is there such a thing as Trumpism without Trump? I think there is. I mean, that is the case that the DeSantis camp is trying to make, right? This is Trump, but he uh, actually does his research and makes sure that he can have a victory in these battles or 
he's Trump without the sort of caustic personality um, is what they'll say. I think the the major point that he has there is on the pandemic, because although Trump's trying, trying to do a little bit of revisionist history, he sided with Fauci and Burks in the initial throes of COVID. And he accepted the lockdowns for quite some time. And I think really bought into what the scientists were telling him until much later than DeSantis kind of figured out that they were selling everyone a bill of goods. And he will probably also be criticized for his role in Operation Warp Speed, which helped produce the vaccines that a lot of people are now questioning the efficacy of and questioning whether or not there are side effects to the vaccines that are causing um, serious issues with young people that are more dangerous than issues they might have had from developing COVID. Um, So I think Trump will have to answer for his pandemic response, and it'll be difficult for him to wriggle out of that once DeSantis is able to address that directly. Freddie concludes his piece by saying that perhaps DeSantis's biggest problem is that Americans, and particularly Republican Americans, are still in the mood to cause trouble politically. Does it feel that way to you in America? Yes and no. I, I think people say that they want a return to normalcy, but when it comes down to what they actually are attracted to and what they vote for, it doesn't really come out that way. So uh, I think Biden was an exception to that because we were coming off of a fresh Trump term. But now that there's been a little bit of breathing room and it turned out that Biden was not the return to normalcy candidate. And in fact, things in America, particularly economically, are are incredibly challenging right now and incredibly divisive. People probably do want Trump to be their retribution. They want someone who is going to be a little bit more aggressive and pushing back in some of the policies that have really upended their lives over the past three years at this point, two years. Um, so I, I just think there's a, it's hard to tell because there's a disconnect between what people say they want heading into an election and then what they actually vote for or what they watch on cable news or what speeches they go to. It doesn't always exactly line up. Like people would always say, for example, and this is probably the best illustration of the point, that they love Trump, but they didn't like his tweets. But you can't separate Trump from the tweets, right? Like that's part of him. That's part of his appeal is his sort of boxer willing to to jump into the fray personality. And so people would say, you know, if we could separate Trump from his personality, then it w- he would be the perfect political candidate. But I don't think that Trump can be separated from his personality. That's part of the appeal. Well, Freddie and Amber, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. Next, in her politics column this week, The Spectator's political editor Katie Balls unpacked the significance of the government's plan on small boats. She joins me now alongside frequent Spectator contributor Patrick O'Flynn. Katie, to start us off, could you take us through the Prime Minister's plans? So the new legislation titled the Illegal Migration Bill is effectively trying to make it so the government can block anyone who enters the country illegally from claiming asylum. And it does so in a few different ways. And there's only a very, very minor group of exceptions. So if you're an unaccompanied child, if you're so ill, you cannot go on that flight. That would exempt you from this. But it is shutting down the routes to claiming asylum, but it is clamping down on the Modern Slavery Act, giving the power new uh, powers to detain and then deport um, within 28 days during that period you would not have access to, for example, judicial review, and also giving the Home Secretary a legal duty to detain and deport. 
Of course, the big question is, is this doable? And the government is braced for it to be challenged in the courts. And there's also lots of logistical issues in terms of how they'll practically deliver it. And there's questions over what the Lords and Labour will do. Patrick, you have written uh, um, for The Spectator's website and also for the magazine on the small boats crisis. It's something you've, you've followed closely for us. I wonder what you make of the announcement this week and, and in particular about at the end there when Katie mentioned the possibility of the bill being held up by Labour, by the courts and, and the Lords and so on. I mean, what, what did you make of, of the bill and its um, feasibility, I suppose? Well, as someone who's been, uh, as, as you imply, banging on about it for several years and calling <laughs> for these that, kind of measures, it, 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 yeah, it would be very ungenerous of me to sort of dump on it now. And, you know, compared to previous uh, Tory legislative measures, such as Priti Patel's, what was it called, Nationality and Borders Bill, that was very tangential and it had things like increasing penalties and sentences for people smugglers convicted. It, it was never going to address the core issue. This legislation is far more ambitious. It imposes what we need, which is a, a standard template, basically. You arrive illegally... You can't claim asylum, although, as, as Kate says, a few very minor differences. There seems to be a, going to be a move to standard detention and with this uh, statutory duty on the Home Secretary to remove, this will trump various uh, rights of appeal that have been gumming things up as it is. So it's a vast improvement. Rishi Sunak, you know, looked down the barrel of the camera and told the country he's going to stop the boats. I personally think if he succeeds partially, so long as he's strained every sinew, he will be given credit for that. But if at any point he is perceived to have folded in the face of establishment resistance, then it's doubly disastrous. He'll have raised the salience of this issue even further and been found wanting and buckled he can't afford to do that. So that leaves me hopeful that we're going to get a decent outcome. And would you agree with Katie, as she puts it in her column, that the small boats issue is one of the, the few issues that the public can identify? There's a sort of a clear dividing line between um, the Tories and Labour. And so it is a sort of it is an issue that that does appeal to large parts of the electorate. I mean, especially within the Red Wall. Uh, Yes, that's absolutely right. And I think Keir Starmer's quite shrewd tactic at the moment is to go very close to Tory policy, knowing that the the reputation of leading Tory figures is down in the bin and that if it doesn't look like there's a massive lurch to the left coming, people will prefer him, Rachel Reeves, Wes Streeting, to give somebody fresh a go. Now, he has even tried that to an extent on this measure. For instance, Emily Thornbury and Keir Starmer's office have said Gary Lineker went too far bringing in Nazi Germany. Uh, As Katie says in her column, it's very much a technocratic case against the bill. They're saying it won't work. It's a gimmick. The Tories aren't competent. We know that really it's a values driven emotive issue Uh, and Starmer although he said he will oppose the measure in parliament is going to try and keep the temperature down and get the political discussion onto issues where he thinks he's he's better placed i.e standard living crisis state of the national health service but i think in the end it's such a powerful issue such an emotive issue with those core groups of voters especially in the red wall that they are going to want to see some content on this they're very interested in the issue and if rishi starts delivering i think there'll be a dramatic poll swing back towards the tories in the red wall 
And Katie, you, you finish your column by saying that if the latest government plan fails, then pulling out of the ECHR might end up being the only option he has left. Is that a likely outcome? I think it's plausible. What we've seen with the move this week from the government, I think, is an attempt to avoid having to leave the ECHR. Yet even when Suella Braverman was going through legislation in the Commons, there were interventions from the Tory side saying, what about the ECHR? And if this doesn't work, will you promise that this is the next move? Um, Now, you didn't get such a commitment from the Home Secretary or the Prime Minister. But I think it shows you which way the wind is blowing. And I think by taking such a bold stance here, by Rishi Sunak making it his personal priority, you know, he gave the press conference, he's not hiding behind the Home Secretary on this, he's looking to own the issue too. He is giving himself not many options if it doesn't work out as planned. And all this legislation does is give a framework. It then has to have a big operational push. I think that's going to be difficult. It's one challenge getting the legislation to become law. It's another getting this whole system to work. And it does mean if you get to a point near the next election where it looks as though the Tories have exhausted all these options after successive failures, I think we should add in the sense that there's been lots of talk in the past and yet you're seeing the number of those crossing the channel rising. Then what lever does Rishi Sunak pull? I don't think it's impossible that he would put leaving the ECHR and the Tory manifesto. I think that's where actually some even mainstream Tory opinion could go at this point if if there wasn't progress, because it's seen as, for the reasons Patrick was saying, such a potent issue with their electorate. And therefore, what does that do? I think there's good reason Rishi Sunak has not got to that point yet, which is wherever you sit in this debate, people who suggest leaving the ECHR is an easy solution or a silver bullet and not being entirely straight with you, it would be very complicated. It would mean rewriting parts of the Good Friday Agreement, looking at the current Brexit deal. It would also mean splitting the Tory party and probably the cabinet. I don't think the Attorney General, Victoria Prentice, from much of what we, you know, her interventions and the sense of where she sits politically is someone who would advocate that. I think there are others who would also harbour concerns. So ultimately, Rishi Dunk's best hope is that by using this bill to push the limits of what is legally possible and we'll find out how legal it is in due course he's trying to find a way I think to tackle this while keeping the Tory party together if it doesn't work he's into a world of hard choices. Patrick what do you think do you think that you can see a scenario whereby uh, the Conservatives fight the next election on a manifesto where they say they will leave the ECHR I mean as you said Rishi has um, made this one of his sort of five pledges and he's 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 made it so front and center of discussion right now um he can't really afford to to fail ultimately can he that's uh, true. I do think it's possible, as Katie says, it would end up in the next Conservative manifesto. But I think they've kind of engineered this legislation, as I understand it, to enable them to behave on the ground as as if they've won the case with the ECHR. So the ECHR, the, the court cases, can take several years to unfold. So it, there's kind of like a Nike slogan, just do it, you know, and then wait. And the court case ultimately gets resolved after the general election. So if in the meantime, the legislation's on the statute book, the removals get going to Rwanda, standard detention becomes the way we do things, we can expect a deterrent impact and people won't be spending two or 3,000 quid for a, for a seat in, in a dinghy, knowing they'll end up in Rwanda or even further away. So there is a way that he, he can run very hard with the policy 
even if there's, there's an aggressive case against him in the European Court of Human Rights. And in that case, he might go in with a manifesto, a contingent manifesto pledge, i.e. if they ultimately thwart us, we will have to leave. But I think it's, it's all about getting the numbers down, being seen to make it work. My slight fear is that he's going to over-rely on stuff from Macron and France, and, and they are capable of reducing the numbers more than they have been doing. But that in a way, from my perspective, that gives Macron a foot on Rishi Sunak's throat that he can he can lever downwards or upwards at, at any moment. And I think the United Kingdom as a sovereign, sovereign nation needs to take its own responsibility and have its own framework to sort this issue out. Thank you, Katie and Patrick. And finally, in the art section of the magazine, Cosmo Landersman writes about the time his father invited a man and his axe to come and smash up a piano in his house in the name of performance art. He joins me now, along with The Spectator's arts editor, Igor Torinli Lalek. Cosmo, could you take us through the day that an artist came to your house and destroyed a piano? Well, I think I'm going to start off by saying the artist and his axe did not mean his guitar. It meant literally an axe, the kind yeah. that woodsmen have, you know, those big, big axes. I came home from school expecting, you know, my regular tea and mum and dad and stuff. And I found this man chopping away at the family piano with an axe. (laughs) And I wondered what the hell was going on. And my father saw me and he saw the distress on my young face and said, don't worry, son, this is art. And what did you think at the time? Did you think, ah, yes, you're quite right, father, this is art? Uh, No, but I thought, this looks like fun. Maybe when I grow up, I could do this. Because when you're a kid, smashing up things is like, you know, it's great fun. So I I enjoyed the look of it. So, Igor, I wanted to get your take on this this piece of art that described by the Tate as Duncan Terrace Piano Destruction Concert. Firstly, have you been to see the piano in Tate Modern? I haven't yet, but I will. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's quite sad, these works of art that had this amazing, you know, the performance of it is much greater, I would say, than seeing it sort of smashed up on a wall. Yeah. Um, it's sort of sad seeing these works of art museumified. So in what way would you consider it performance art? For listeners who perhaps not not, not aware of it as a trend, uh, we were talking about, before we started recording, that, that you've actually been to a couple of performance art piano destructions of your own, haven't you? Yes, I, I organised one, um, a performance of a composition by Philip Corner called Piano Activities, about 10 years ago, which was the first attempt to, to introduce destructive elements within art. In this, in this instance, it was a concert, concert setting. And the first performance, they just went at it about... 10 composers just just destroyed this piano, dismantled it. Mm. And so we were recreating that performance. And it's, you know, you need to think very hard about what you want to take away, what you want the audience to take away from this. I, I, think, you, and I so, think you should also point out, because it's hanging in the Tate now, it looks like a sort of, you know, a still piece of art, but it was actually a concert. It was meant to be a performance. The key in performance art is performance bit. And it was a musical thing. It was, you know, the avant-garde gone to its farthest realm possible. That was the idea. Yes, and and that piano in particular. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Cosmo, but didn't it had quite a lot of, quite a lot of significance for your family, didn't it? Didn't it? You know, your mother being a composer and so on. So then having it destroyed, did that have a particular 
the residence for your family. Well, I, I was sort of sad to see it go. You know, it had hosted various jazz musicians and people and sing songs around the family. It sounds very sentimental. But in a way, I, you know, I was sorry to see it go. And the idea that it was the symbol of Eurocentric oppression never occurred to me. And I don't, I don't think it occurred to the artist until much later as well. well Igor, I, I'd like to, if I, if I may, get your thoughts almost on a philosophical level about destruction as art. When are destructive acts acts of art and when are they anti-art? It's very hard to tell. I mean, I don't know. I've I've been to many a show where I thought, oh, this would be much better as a burning pyre, you know? I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, so it really depends. I mean, it's it, what the destructive movement in the 60s was really about was a kind of leapfrogging of the Enlightenment, going back, back, back into... It was actually a really conservative movement. It was going back to the, to the really earliest ideas of art, the ritualistic ideas of art, the sort of pre-Cambrian ideas of sacrifice and cathartic, let's, let's like tear stuff down in order to sort of appease the gods kind of thinking. Hmm. Which, so it was actually something hugely traditional and something very common if you really think about the history of, of, of humanity. Yeah. And I also think it's important to point out that this might sound like some crazy little avant-garde world of four people in London, but this was going on the stages throughout the world in pop music with, you know, The Who smashing up their equipment, Jimi Hendrix. There was a whole aesthetic that was widespread at the time, you know, and the, what was going on in my parents' basement was just an earlier part of this, this whole movement. Townsend, Townsend actually got the idea for smashing up the piano from Gustav Metzger, who did a talk at Ealing Art School when he was there. So, it's, so the, the link is absolutely direct. And uh, would you not think much of people who would say that destruction of any kind has a sort of Maoist connotation to it, a kind of a nastiness to it that is sort of anti-creative? Yeah, it is, it is nasty, and we need more of that nastiness in art. I mean, not, uh, art has gone far too nice, far too polite. I mean, th- this is the problem. I mean, th- this was, these were acts of radical p- political acts in a way. I mean, I don't want to over-egg the sort of the symbolism of it all. I think that's where the art becomes sort of inert. It's actually fun, right? It, it, it's play. It's, it's, back, it's, it's also more... back to the time of the futurists. You know, we will destroy the museums. We will destroy the art galleries. We will totally. be destruction and, you know, the exhilaration of destruction. I mean, it's, it's all there. So I suppose then a question to both of you is, uh, you know, one of the big stories of, of the art world that's been in mainstream news recently has been the actions of groups such as Just Stop Oil, who sort of target works of art chuck soup on them and so on although actually they often target the ones that have um, protective casings i mean but do you think something like that could count as destruction art or is it is it not because it's for a political purpose rather than for the sake of it itself for me it's too on the nose i mean often they pick works of art that are not my favorite so i never mind i mean it really depends it's about how what what kind of case can you make for it? it's about plausibility to me it, it when it's something that's so sort of just like obviously literal, that's no longer art. You're engaging in something that is activism, is, is, is really something PR. opposite of art. It's PR. It's not art. It's propaganda. It's PR. It's on that level of the spectrum, you know, so it's nothing to do with art. They're not interested in art, and that's fine. They're interested in other things. Well, Cosmo, if you were invited to another destruction of a piano concert, would you accept now that you're... Um, no longer a boy. Definitely. Bring, brings back happy memories in those crazy times <laughs> of the 60s. I'll have to go to Igor's next one. Well, I won't. Oh, Igor, I'm not going to ask you if you're a Ted because I know you're going to say yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, um, my, my friend was, didn't know what to do with the old piano they had. And I said, let's burn it. So we burnt it. It's ex- incredible. You should all do it. Everyone should burn a piano. 
I mean, there, there's many people who have done it. I mean, the, lots and lots of people have done it. But it is the sound of it, the look of it, the feel of it, the, the exhilaration, the cathartic exhilaration you get from seeing this beautiful object become even more sort of transcendently beautiful. And I suppose finally, Igor, what do you say to the argument that instead of destroying a piano, perhaps perhaps it's quite a utilitarian argument, but if that piano was given to, you know, a school hall or something like that, that over time, greater pleasure could be had still by a, great, a greater number of people. This was the Guardian's objection to what we did. This is the left's objection. They, they don't want art. They don't understand art. They need art to be useful, which is completely yeah, antithetical yeah, I, did, I, did, I did say it was a utilitarian right. argument. I so, I mean, it's true. I think, I think, you know, you have to make some compromise. The piano that we destroyed was actually... Was, was screwed, you know, you couldn't do anything okay. with it. So I, th- I think you probably have to do that rather than... I, it would be a bit ridiculous to destroy a brand new Steinway. I mean, I, I could... Un- but maybe that's, you know, you need... That, that would be kind of shocking and interesting. <laughs> Don't let you near the concert halls anytime soon. <laughs> well, you haven't seen the concert I've seen. I mean, honestly, I would have burnt half of those pianos, half of those musicians, let alone... <laughs> Well, before we get uh, before we get too out of hand, I think we'll have to call it there. But Igor and Cosway, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, you can pick up a copy of the magazine to read everything we've discussed. I'm Lara Prendergast. And I'm William Moore. And I do hope you'll join us again next week. <laughs>